I had to hold my ground because you can't, once you've made a statement like that and tried to lay out a case, you cannot backtrack. You have to hold the ground and, and, and um, maintain the argument. He verbally abused me very loudly, threatened me, belittled me, told me I was dumb, I didn't know what my job was or how to do it. And it went on for quite some time and to the point that I eventually got up and just left the room. This is Tasmanian Women with a Frank and Fearless Voice. From social issues to ensuring good corporate social responsibility and those who have bravely named up the inappropriate behaviour of men, the term Frank and Fearless originates from the public service and how an apolitical professional public service provides impartial advice to the government of the day to stand up and say something is wrong without being labelled difficult or sidelined from a discussion. To contribute to a Tasmanian society that embraces debate and is open to wanting to hear from those who raise the sticky, uncomfortable issues, the often inconvenient truths. To hear and respect all voices equally. Welcome to episode two of Frank and Fearless. Today I'm really excited to introduce Cassie O'Connor, leader of the Greens, and Ruth Forrest, independent member for Murchison and deputy president of the Legislative Council. These two Tasmanian women have an independence of spirit and they are a great example of how you can have a high level influence without always having to hold the reins of power. That goes to the heart of what Frank and Fearless is all about. It shows that you don't have to compromise as you might if you were actually in government or beyond to get things done to the benefit of Tasmanians. So I'm going to start by asking both Ruth and Cassie, what or who motivated you to enter politics and when did you first know you wanted to take up a role in public life? Thanks, Kim. Um, As far as what motivated me, it was really the desire to have a broader impact on the lives of women and families because as a midwife and a nurse, you're actually very very um, influential, if you like, in the lives of birthing women and their families. But I wanted to make a broader impact. Um, I never, I didn't actually think Parliament was the way to do that until um, some good friends of mine, Alison and Stephen Parry, who um, Stephen was elected to the Senate just before I was elected to the Legislative Council, uh, uh, were discussing what I could do to try and make a bit more of a change and have a bit of a change of direction perhaps. So Alice and I did our general nurse training together, so we've been good friends for a long time. So when I, about knowing when I wanted to take on a public role, I didn't actually know that until actually I was putting my nomination form in for the Legislative Council, because prior to that I'd had no real public role other than some leadership roles within the College of Midwives. I'm a slightly accidental politician, so I grew up in a family um, where my dad was an ABC journalist, and so politics was talked about at the table a lot. Um, and there was also these discussions about what fairness means and social justice. But I also grew up in Joe Belke-Peterson's Queensland and I, I watched um, what happened. I watched um, corruption in government. I watched coastal landscapes getting flattened and um, this sort of simmering sense of injustice um, about what was happening to the natural world particularly um, was 
cultivated in me from a very early age, but I didn't want to be a politician. Uh, I really wanted to be a journalist, and I was, and I loved that privilege of being um, invited into people's lives and hearing their stories. And I was a young journalist who thought that through the power of my language, I could change people's hearts and minds. I was in the wrong profession for that, really, and I accidentally ended up in Parliament because Bob Brown uh, rang me up during the Ralphs Bay campaign and said you should run for state parliament. Anyway, um, a few conversations and cups of tea later, that's what I did. And I think it comes from just wanting to change the world a bit and make it a better place. Mm-hmm. So we're both really accidental politicians, yeah, we really. It wasn't a plan. And don't yeah. you love your job, though? I mean, you yeah. know, even though we're not here by design, aren't yeah. we? Mm. I just feel lucky every day. Mm. Yeah. 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 So it is a privileged position. Yeah. It is. Mm. So, which is a nice segue to a question which really is, you know, in both of your um, political careers, um, you, you've made major reform agendas happen for Tasmania, not just social but environmental and economic. Do each of you hold a particular reform or legislative process that you feel most proud of, that you um, know is a legacy that you've left for Tasmanians? Well, it's a, I guess the thing that I'm most proud of, or I think has had the most um, effect, um, was my vote on the Tasmanian Forest Agreement. So even it wasn't, even though it wasn't something that I personally led, I was part of it. And um, because of that vote, we saved 570,000 hectares of high conservation value forest from logging. So I'm very um, proud of that. And, and it was difficult. It was a really difficult time um, for the conservation movement, for the forest industry, for a, a Labor-Green government that had, you know, all sorts of complexities. Uh, it was a difficult time for the Greens members. Um, so I'm very, very proud of that. But the most manifest thing I'm proud of is every time I drive past Queenswalk Apartments uh, because I see a place that under a previous minister would have been flattened and now is a community um, where people want to live and I, I just love driving past Queen's Walk. Yeah, it makes yeah. me proud. Yeah, mm. I can imagine that, yeah. And Ruth? Yeah, I mean, I think some time ago I made a decision never to walk past failures of others perhaps in terms of standing up for people who are marginalised and I felt um, women particularly have been marginalised in our parliament for a long time. It is, it is slowly changing. And so anything, any area that would promote the well-being of women particularly um, or other marginalised groups is where I thought I could have the most impact. So I think um, even though, again, like Cassie, I've not actually led the legislative reform um, directly, but with the mar- when we did the same-sex marriage legislation in Tasmania, I actually led it in our house um, and we came awfully close and it was all an important step in the way. Um, and then the gender law reform that we did more recently. So wonderful. That was, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, it was inserted in haste um, in the lower house with the intention to get it on the agenda, if you like. Um, and then I spent all summer <laughs> working through with the key stakeholder groups and trying to stare down the detractors to bring forward a piece of legislation that would be supported, and it was. And the thanks that um, you get for that is is just directly from parents of young transgender kids um, and transgender people themselves that can actually have a birth certificate that reflects who they are. Uh, and even um, one of the babies I delivered, um, his mother or their mother told me that they um, they were going to buy 
for their 18th birthday, they will give them a birth certificate with the correct detail on it. Wow. Yeah. So, so that was, you know, that's legislative reform that creates happiness. Yes. Yeah. A mm. Real safety happiness and, and happiness. safety and mm. meaning in people's Peace lives. Peace of mind yeah. for people. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And it's sort of, you've sort of answered two questions in one because my next question mm. was going to be, the first question was what you were most proud of, but what has been the hardest reform to stare down? And I know with, with that piece of legislation, particularly there was some tough stuff happening in the background, but are there other areas that you've really had to hold your nerve on? Well, I think those ones, um, that particularly was, was difficult. Um, but I, I always made a point of listening to the people who were opposed because they're, they're entitled to their view. Mm. Um, but often when you talk to them and actually listen to them and then fed back what they were saying, they did, really didn't have an answer about why they were con- so concerned about toilets, yeah. for example. Yeah. But the other one that was really tough was the termination of pregnancy legislation. Yes. Um, as a midwife who's worked really intimately with women um, you know, seeking a termination or um, even losing a baby through miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy or whatever it may be, I have had a really deep understanding of the traumas associated with that, the decision-making that is made, um, assisting a, fr- a friend of mine actually make a decision around terminating a 20-week pregnancy because she was so unwell and the baby was never going to survive and was getting really... You know, it was yeah. it was an impossible situation, and so they were really difficult times. And to sit around the table during the when that was sent off, that bill was sent off to a committee of our house, um, and to hear some of the other members say some of the terrible things they yeah. said, um, and speak up without completely losing my mind, um, and saying don't be such an idiot, um, in, with other words involved, yeah. it, it was really really tough and. Uh, and then the pressures around the, the access zone issue, which the Tasmania led on. I commend Michelle O'Byrne for her mm, work in yep. this too, yeah. absolutely. But Tasmania led the way in that. So, and, and you know, getting photos of aborted fetuses through the mail and things like that, which, I mean, I can cope with because I've seen, you know, um, terminated pregnancies and things like that. But my EA hadn't. And that's who opened the mail. And you know, for a so lot it's of pretty awful. A lot of people listening don't understand in the background just what's going on in terms of that pressure. Mm. Um, and I'll ask you, Cassie, in a moment of, you know, some mm. examples where you've had to really hold your ground. But just before we mm. move to that, I want to ask you, Ruth, how do you then hold your nerve when you've got a lot of pressure, some of which in the background can be quite frightening in terms of the way that that's coming at you? I think there probably is, Kim. I, naming that up exactly as what mm. it is is difficult. But I think it's that... The fire in my belly yeah. yep. that that says no. This is so important. It may not be important for me, and it probably mm-hmm. isn't. Um, but there are many others who don't have a voice, who um, are really vulnerable and actually need me to keep holding the line. I found it particularly difficult at times when you didn't have a lot of people standing behind you yeah. and you're sort of out there on your own. I think that's changing. Um, and whenever I get the opportunity to speak publicly about this, I say, look, if you support the stance I'm taking, please let me know you're there behind me Yeah. Uh, because it is pretty isolating at times and, I mean, you get some pretty awful messages and you get some pretty awful emails and letters Letters and um, and it's easy to think, well, they're nothing, they're not, you know, we can't let them get inside us but it's easier said than done. Yeah. As a Green, it sometimes feels really lonely in the House of Assembly when you're arguing for meaningful climate action, for the protection of our forests mm-hmm. and waterways. It gets, 
you know, there's Rosalie Woodruff and I in there um, arguing for um, nature and, and so every day you're kind of staring down. But I guess the most contentious one was when I piped up about um, my concerns about Chinese government um, interference and influence in Tasmania. And one of the things about having a background as a journalist is that I'm a a voracious and sometimes to my own detriment, um, reader of news mm. and information and papers and research and things like that. So I knew I was right. Um, yeah. And it was finding the um, finding the right language to convey um, a concern and a need for um, greater public awareness of the issue um, and the need for a, um, a community conversation that's really respectful mm. um, about, you know, our, our sovereignty, um, our environment and the fact that, you know, um, we would just be a tasty morsel for a big country like China. So that got really ugly, actually. Yes. I was called a racist, mm. which... Um, it's just about, you know, it's one of the worst things you can call a person. Yes. Um, and so I had to counter that on the one hand, and it was some of it was coming from within our party nationally. Yeah, okay. Um, yep. And so I had to sort of stand, I had to hold my ground because mm. you can't, once you've made a statement like that and tried to lay out a case, you just cannot, you cannot backtrack. You have to hold the ground yep. and, and, and um, maintain the argument. And I actually think... Um, that, that we have shifted the conversation here. Mm. I don't mind losing a bit of bark for it uh, because I think it was really uh, important that we have that conversation as Tasmanians mm. um, who are the stewards of this beautiful, closely connected island. And I think that's just such an important example for Tasmanians to understand that if you look back at what your party and the Greens have done in the last 20 years... Um, our brand wouldn't be what it was if you hadn't have existed. So, you know, it's not until hindsight can help people sometimes see how important your stance has been that that maybe that understanding comes. But it, I can't imagine how tough it must be for you to have to hold firm on that in the meantime. It's just one of those things I was, I have, and I think like Ruth, there's something that blazes inside me um, for truth to be told for us to strive towards justice. Mm. And it's really interesting what you're saying before about the brand, um, which is sort of, I think, under constant threat in mm. real time. But, you know, I travel all over this lovely island and have the great privilege of talking to people where they are yeah. in their communities. And even people who wouldn't dream of voting green will say, we're thankful we know that you we know that the greens and and by that they also mean the broader conservation movement yes have done a lot um to make tasmania what it is today mm. and um it's true it's true mm. i think what i mean i'm sure you would agree Kirsty, that things that help keep you going are those positive feedback messages you do get like yeah. there are um you know a range of people that you know pile on as um in defense of us and our, our yeah. comments uh, and they don't always do it publicly they can do it quietly yeah. through a text message or a phone call or something like that um because they don't also want to draw attention to themselves which is fine but there are I've got a few loyal fans I call them who yes. come in on social media and back me yeah. yep. when they see people starting to attack and yeah. just you know trying to trap um, you know, tr asking the same question after you've answered in a slightly different way, just mm -hmm. trying to trap you all the time. And I think 
you know, I know you've got to know when to bow out, but not backtrack. And that's, that's what you right. were saying, Katie, mm. Casey. Not step away from your stance, particularly when you've done the work, you've done the research, you know that you're right, um, and that you know something relies on you maintaining this this position, something or some people or both. Yes. Um, and to to step back and let those people down um, is just not on my agenda. That's right. Yeah, mm. And I don't give up. And no, look, it is, no. that's why we love you. <laughs> I was going to say, it's yeah. the shared fire in your belly that yeah. you both described. I think most people can, even if they don't always agree with mm. whatever position you might be um, taking, um, they understand what's driving you is that need to ensure everyone has a voice in Tasmania, mm. which mm. is so important because mm. so many people don't. So. Well, I've often said it's not about being liked by people, no. it's about being respected. Yeah. Um, and I don't expect everyone to agree with me. In fact, I know there's plenty of people who don't on many things that yeah. I stand for, um, but I do appreciate the fact that most of them will respect the view I hold because they know it's well-informed and I'm I'm sure you get that too, Cassie. Well, that's really interesting about Ruth. So one of the the reasons you're one of my favourite elected (laughs) representatives is because, um, you know, if you just step back from the community that you represent, Mm. it's, um, you know, at face value quite a conservative community on the northwest coast of Tasmania and and yet um, Ruth is an immensely popular um, Mm -hmm. member of the Upper House, even though um, she's cast votes, for example, on the pulp mill, uh, on the Tasmanian Forest Agreement, that were brave and the right vote. And and her community respects her for that. And I think you'll find that it's one of the sort of blessings of being a representative on a small island Mm. um, is that because you're connected to your people, as Ruth said, Mm. if you can have those conversations and explain, this is why I did this, and and they know it comes from a good place and you're a truth teller, um, Mm. you will will hold respect. Yes. And you go back to people who know that that won't be happy with your decision on a particular vote and front up yourself. Yeah, I've gone and knocked on the door and say, hi, here yeah. I am. Let's talk about I know you're this. not happy, yeah. but I'd like to talk to you. Yeah. And I've done that on more than one occasion. Yeah. Mm. And, it, and it works. And it there's helps. respect in that, isn't yeah. that? Because you respect them understanding your position and you learning and a bit more about view. theirs. Yeah. 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 So I'm going to lead into a question now that's around um, what has become more higher profile I guess in Australia and in Tasmania over the last six to 12 months and that's around the multiple um, revelations and examples of all of the diverse range of challenges and inappropriate behaviour by men that many women in parliaments right across Australia have had to endure and to manage. So you've both been open and brave in naming up your experiences of inappropriate behaviour by men as uh, people sitting in the Tasmanian Parliament. And I really want to talk a little bit about, firstly, your experiences, because you've you've sort of got a shared experience of that, I think. Um, but also what, um, once you've done that, to talk a little bit about how we can make the Tasmanian Parliament safer for women. Yeah, I mean, I came from a very female-dominated workforce, being a nurse and midwife. And uh, to step into a very patriarchal place in 2005 that was very full of entitled, privileged men who seemed to be entirely unaware of that privilege and entitlement, um, that it was a bit of a challenge initially for me to feel safe in there, just even willing to speak up. But I thought, I I soon realised and went back to my roots of, you know, why are you doing this? Um, and standing up for the rights of others, like I, as I did as a midwife, 
I found it really important to actually call out the behaviours. And so there's been many occasions of misogynistic behaviours um, and I've always challenged them. Some have been easier than others. And sometimes it's about educating the, the men mostly who were doing this um, to make them aware they're even doing it because I think sometimes they're actually not aware of the, the way they're behaving. But the incident with Reen Hitting, which is the most well publicised one, obviously, um, yeah, it was, it was at a public, it was a dinner in Parliament House, but the mem- members were the public there. Um, and he verbally abused me, you know, very loudly, um, threatened me, um, threatened me with loss of funding to my electorate, belittled me, told me I was dumb, I didn't know what my job was or how to do it. And and on it went, and it went on for quite some time, and to the point that I eventually got up and just left the room, quite shaken by it. Um, and there were several witnesses close by. One of them was um, one of his own colleagues, and who two two nights later at a social function back in the in my electorate, apologised to me for not stepping up and saying, you know, stopping it or at least intervening to see if I was okay. That person then later put a report in about the incident which said along the lines that he observed two members of parliament having a normal conversation. And so I felt felt shattered by that. Mm. I felt shattered by the incident. I felt shattered by that. I got a non-apology from Mr Hitting when he said, oh, if you feel upset by that, I apologise. That is not an apology. I was then threatened with defamation. I, I dared to raise the fact that he was a White Ribbon ambassador. I believed he was. Um, and so, that, and I think that led to the, you know, that and the fact that I called it out in the first place led to the textbook Liberal Party policy of defamation. Overnight, a report was, or I, I believed it was a report, but I understand um, it was advice was sought from the Solicitor General and from the Secretary of DPAC by the then Premier Will Hodgman as to whether there'd been a breach of the Code of Conduct. At no point did the Secretary of DPAC speak to me at all, even though I'd only put a small amount of what happened on the public record, nor did I have any um, communication with the Solicitor General's office, but um, allegedly advice was provided that there was no nothing to see, no breach, and I felt completely shattered by that. And then when I know that Cassie's had a similar experience where um, a report's done with no discussion. When I heard Cassie speak about that in Parliament, I was actually listening, I think at the time, or saw the media on it. And I had a visceral reaction because I thought, oh my God, that's exactly what happened. This is the modus operandi, is it? And so we then, um, Reen and I then went and had mediation, which of course um, I won't speak more about. But it was a pretty unedifying um, episode. I felt very unsupported. Um, thankfully, had we had a, um, a woman in the position of Deputy Clark, who was very, who was very supportive. But without her, there would have been nobody. Pretty tough. Um, but I think it was absolutely the right thing to do, and it was verified as the right thing to do by the number of people from within the community who got in touch with me, and said thank you for doing that, and relayed some of their own experiences. Um, with him, but you know, um, and I thought, no, and so thank God you've been able to do it because we couldn't. It's interesting listening to your story. Um, it's like we're in a 
a constant low-grade state of PTSD. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Women who've been in, um, I think, in all sorts of roles mm. in the community. And, you know, when you get to a certain age, you know, I'm more than half a century old now, and um, you're so... Um, you become used to it, you become a bit ground down by it, it makes you angry, you want to fight and um, and it and it's just not changing fast enough. But when Ruth was talking, I was thinking about, you know, you went into Parliament in 2005, I didn't go in until 2008. But when you have a look at some of the old Hansard records of what life was like for women before they televised Parliament, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, women like Christine Milne, Sue Napier, Judy Jackson, Fran Bladel... Boy, they copped it. Yeah. They were called feminazis, um, constant stream of abuse across the chamber from the men in the chamber. So I think we've come some way. Yes. Um, but there's all that um, – uh, there's plenty of unconscious um, sexism happening in um, state parliament and, and to the specific example of the Liberal um, – staffer who thought it was okay to walk across the lawns of parliament and um, audibly described me as a meth head C-U-N-T and think he could get away with it, which he did for nearly two years. Um, It was really shocking. And what made it most shocking was that um, our then senior advisor who heard it, Alice Giblin, who, um, you know, also a passionate um, uh, feminist, um, wrote to the uh, contact of the premier's chief of staff um, and that and the and the process that followed was very much like what Ruth was talking about there it was all stitched up you know and in the end what happened was that the premier believed the male staffer did not believe my female senior advisor or me by um, association. So we still have that tendency to believe the blokes. And the most recent example of that, of course, and I know that that had the overlay of politics on it, but during the, the state election campaign, you've got a Liberal candidate and former um, Liberal minister who lied to Parliament three times, who um, women have come forward about um, that he's... A, you know, lied to them about his identity and um, and then a female journalist asks the Premier about it and gets accused of falsifying information. And again, we had women not being believed. We're sick of the words being said um, and it not translating into action. And there's this... Uh, what's happened after last year and um, and Brittany Higgins and the um, the Christian Porter situation, he's still sitting in Parliament. Um, but what happened last year is that I think women across Australia just reached this nearly incandescent level of rage where it was – you could feel it at the on the lawns of Parliament that time and when Grace Tame spoke. Like, we're just roaring with rage and it is my great hope – um, that that will be channelled into um, action, change, um, and if necessary, a change of government at a federal level because I think a lot of these problems come from the top because when I worked in the Keating government um, in the sort of mid-90s, there was not this culture of sexism in that government. And I know it's like the good old days, but it was much better. It was much more respectful. I was a young woman in that environment and I didn't feel that overlay of, you know, women were lesser in that yes. time. 
One of the things that really struck me in some of the rallies after Brittany Higgins was brave and, you know, Grace Chambers contributed greatly to that Mm. as well. But I listened because I couldn't come to the Tasmanian rally. I, I was driving and I listened to a woman in Canberra being interviewed and she was 78 and she mm. said, I was raped when I was 20 and this is the first time I felt brave enough to tell anyone. Mm. And she was there at that rally to reveal the fact that at that age um, she was now feeling brave that she had the support of other women to tell someone that had happened. And we All can't, her yeah. life. All she'd her life that, she'd kept Can that. you imagine yeah, I know. the pain of trying to bottle that up but all her life? What I just heard from both of you is is the double hit. So the mm. first hit was the fact that you experienced that abuse or that level of you know affront against you. But then when you were brave enough to actually name it up, the process that happened next was your second hit. It doesn't matter that that, it, that didn't happen. It didn't happen at the level that we think it's worthy to, you know, follow through on. Mm. So, so tell me, what is it going to look like for our daughters or for our children if they walk into parliament, males or females, if it's working properly? How should it look? I think we'll know we're there when we don't actually mention it anymore. Um, (laughs) which is probably some time away, I guess. Until we get to that point where women are treated equally with equal opportunity in leadership positions as well as just turning up at the door, I think until until we get there, we do have to keep reminding people this is a historic occasion. Like on on Tuesday this week, we had the commissioner's opening. We had three women doing the commissioner's opening, first time in history. Might not be much, but these things are all significant. So I think we just need... For women to now step into that space, we need to keep speaking up to making it really clear that this is a safe place to be and we need to keep working to make it a safe place because there's still elements that aren't. And don't you think in some ways, you know, the issues in Parliament reflect the broader societal That's challenges so true. Yes. that we have and so you, we, we won't have an equal society for women or all sorts of people who are minorities until we tackle gender inequality, until we tackle racism, until we tackle social inequality. So there are a whole lot of structural things that we need to do as a society to make sure we're a fairer and more equal society. We definitely need more women in leadership. We need to, in processes like the sort of ones that Ruth and I have been through, um, if a woman comes forward, you know, we need to hear her story and act on it. And I don't think that's happening consistently enough right now. And there's a little bit of a problem in the fact that Parliament itself operates as a kind of time warp. Um, it's, it's its own set of rules and processes. Yes. And so there is a question mark at the moment about where a young woman in Parliament might, for example, go if she feels that she's been... Um, if she has an issue with um, a male colleague mm. of some sort. Um, so the processes are a bit arcane. I think, um, and there's something we need to there's work on There's very limited to. processes. There's really nothing yeah. formal. It's just, it's really an informal thing. Well, can't you go and talk to the Speaker or the President or something? You can, but then there's no formal process to follow. That's right. That's the thing. You, yes. know, you can talk to people, but then if there's no process, it depends on that single person to take appropriate action. Mm. And if they do, good. If they don't, well, you've got nowhere else Which to go. Which isn't mm. contemporary with any other workplace in the country, is it? No, I mean, there's no. you know, um, Fair Work Act really lays that out. There's natural mm. justice processes in... Um, There's HR other, departments. That's right. But we not, are... Yeah. So, um, to be fair, mm. um, after um, those issues, mm. you know, 
last year, um, there's a process that's just started in Parliament yeah. to undertake a, right. um, a workplace culture review and... Um, I mean, we definitely need improvements. So hopefully, mm. because it's um, both houses, uh, tripartisan, uh, I'm vaguely hopeful that something mm. will change mm. for the better because a lot of young women look at parliaments and what happens in there and go, why would I do that? Mm. That's right. Why would I do that? And when I get a chance to talk to them, I say, do it because you can do great things, mm. because you can represent your community, because you can argue for change. Do it because it feels good to be brave. But um, at face value, a lot of women are just repelled yes. by what they see. And yeah. that's really regrettable. And I think the tide will turn when instead of um, Meg Webb, who brought that forward to the Premier, it would have been great if the men in Tasmanian Parliament said, how do we make sure this is a great place for women, yeah. not yeah. women having to take that up to men. Well, to, to this week in Parliament, mm. I tabled a motion to establish a Gender and Equalities Committee that's a joint house committee. I hope that's supported by the government so it does actually get up because if we get that through, then this will give men and women in the Parliament the opportunity to um, understand what true gender equality looks like or gender and equality <laughs> looks like, um, but also uh, to actually understand what like things like the gender pay gap look like. There's still a great yes. number of our members who actually don't understand what that actually looks like and what uh, gender inequality looks like. You know, So I think that will help if we can get that and uh, what will flow from that will be a matter of over time, but we've got to establish it first. So, mm. But we do want men and women on that committee. Well, I believe we should have. Absolutely. And, mm. and we're talking about um, elected women right now, but I mm. know that there are women like Alice, mm. your advisor, um, and other women who also work in parliament who also experience what you're describing. Mm. And so this has to be not just for those elected members of parliament, but the women around those. Women. That's right. Yeah. 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 Yep. Do you have advice or words of wisdom for people listening who are considering taking some frank and fearless action, um, no matter what their issue might be, and particularly for women um, who know that their issue might shake up the status quo, it might be a little bit challenging for people in power? If good people don't stand up when they see something wrong or see something that needs changing, the world will not become a better place. Um, and there's that wonderful Rachel Carson quote, uh, and Rachel Carson in 1962 wrote the seminal book Silent Spring about um, the impact of chemicals on the environment and therefore human health. And she said, we must all have a great sense of responsibility and not take the comfortable view that someone else is looking after it. Someone else isn't looking after it. Um, and I think that... Um, for you know, so we're talking to to women now in their in their community. Um, there are so many strengths inside each of us that we don't know we have until we're tested. And I think that, um, in fact, for every person, you don't really know your power until you're put into a position where you need to use it. And I think that um, being brave brings its own rewards because it helps to to guide a light to people who um, see something that they want to change. 
um, you've got to stand up to bullies. It's it's almost rule number one. <laughs> um, you, you you know, bullies, uh, and they come in many forms, and they can be corporates or individuals, or they can be your colleagues in Parliament. Um, I'm not talking about my own darling Rosalie, of course. But you have to be able to to stand up to people like that. And invariably, what happens when you stand up to a bully? They back down. So my advice would be, know yourself. Have a set of values. Have good people around you. It's so important to have good people around you. Say I as little as possible. Say we as much as you can. Um, always give credit where it's due. Um, and, and you know, know your stuff. Have a good heart. Tell the truth. Yep. You can't go too far wrong. Yeah, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I could, I'll back up what Cassie said because there's some of the notes I sort of made to myself about what what you can do. But I think I would encourage people that to firstly do the research, know that they're right, um, and when they're pushing putting something forward, um, because if you get to a point where you're not feeling confident in your own knowledge, then that's when you'll falter. So I think that. Doing the background work is important too, but as Cassie said, absolutely surrounding yourself with good people, people who will back you up, but people who will challenge you as well. Yes. You don't yeah. want to just be looking in the mirror all the time. You've got to have people who will actually test why, what you think to yeah. make sure that you, you're you well informed for a start. Um, and I, I'm a prag- pragmatic optimist. Um, I always believe the yeah. best will happen um, and I'm willing never to give up on something that I really truly believe in and play a long game with a backup plan. Yes. So you, sometimes you've got to do that. And sometimes you've got to sort of step back a little mm. bit and regroup and then go again, but not step right away. And that's the difference, I think. Um, we need to be respectful, um, respect the other person's view and their entitlement to hold it and, and say, you know, I don't have to agree with you. Apologise when you need to. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, and, yep. and, and yep. unreservedly and properly apologise, not to some yep. fake apology. I've had to do that on occasion and I'm, I'm more than happy to do it. Um, but also look after yourselves. You know, do nurture yourself so yes. it comes back to the good people around you. But do spend some time, and also, um, this is me preaching to myself as much as anybody, take time for yourself sometimes and nurture that, that fire, that, you know, that... Um, child within, I think, that was the fierce, determined child that my mother had to deal with. Yes. That drove her insane. Yeah. Um, she needs to come out every now and then again, but she also needs to go back and be loved and nurtured to come back out fighting again when you need to. So um, do that and, and don't walk past. If there's you something that's going on, past. don't walk past. And I, the most recent example of that was, and I was talking to Cassie on the way back from the church service we had to um, commence the new. Um, to a new parliament and um, there was an absolute dearth of women speaking at that church service and as I, I was one of the late last ones to walk out of the church and I spoke to both the dean and the bishop and said bit of a problem with your gender balance there and they and they listened and took it on board I don't we'll see if it changes but I said there are plenty of female members of parliament senior you know ministers yes. leaders of government business in our house I'm the deputy president not one of them was asked to speak. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, and they both 
acknowledge that and I said and it's a small thing to do but every time we do it it makes people think yeah. so mm-hmm. yeah there was one woman who there was, was the Salvation Captain Army Kim woman. Hayworth the lovely Captain yes. Kim yes. from the Salvation yes. Army who um, gave a reading um, but, but she, out of she about, was it yeah, out of about it. 12 yeah. or 13 yeah. speakers she was yeah. the only one yeah mm. still some major challenges but yeah um, you've both just given um, the exact reason why I wanted to sit in front of you or mm. with you here today to have this conversation because the advice that you've both given and the, um, I think the kindness that sits around that in both of your spirits is partly why I think you're two of the most frank and fearless women in Tasmania. Oh, it's an honour to be nice able to sit to with say. you. Pretty good coming from another frank and fearless <laughs> yeah. woman. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important that we... Us frank and fearless yes. women do support each other and reach out to each other when we need. Yeah, that, because you do need mm, um, it, those connections. Mm, it can be lonely to mm. go out on your own mm. on an issue, mm. and you've both described it a bit today. If you don't turn around and see a lot of people following you or with you on that, mm. it's a pretty scary place to be. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. It's hard to keep standing the ground when there's no one there pushing you forward. That's right. Do you know when you were talking before about self care, there's that wonderful, you know, the, the graffiti artist. Banksy Mm. Um, so it's become a bit of a a, a code for resting for me and the quote is when you get tired learn to rest not to quit and I think Mm. sometimes people who are involved in activism and community life trying to drive social Mm. change Mm. um, you know we get a bit you know you get a bit sort of almost punch drunk from Mm. the work Mm. that needs to be done the constant sense that you're not doing enough because there's so Mm. much to do Mm. Um, but it's that thing of no I'm just going to stop now for a little while and I'm just going to rest and recuperate and I'll be back Um, but you know it can be very tempting to pull the doona up and just stay there for a few days sometimes (laughs) back frank and fearless as ever Mm. I think that's a brilliant (laughs) note to end on thank you both so much for your time and sharing what are sometimes personal but also important parts of your world so that more women in Tasmania can become frank and fearless voices. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. And Episode 3 is coming later in July and Episode 3 will focus on women on boards because it starts at the top. Uh, Naomi Edwards, Chair of Spirit Super Board and various other um, important roles within our community. And Brett Tarossi, Chair, Entrepreneur um, and Great Tasmanians. They'll be joining me next time on Frank and Fearless. This podcast is produced by Icon Media and is available on all your favourite podcast channels. <laughs>